Happy Saturday, everybody. We have a new podcast coming out on our network. It's called Unpopular, and it is about resistors, revolutionaries, and other people who challenge the status quo. Eve's Jeffcoat will be hosting the show, and listeners may already know her from this day in history class, and we are both really excited about it. Yes, for sure. And in the spirit of that theme, today we are returning to Lakshmi Bai, Rani of Jhansi, and her role in the Indian Rebellion of 1857, which is also known as India's first War of Independence, this episode is from March of 2011 with hosts Sarah and Dublina. And then Holly and I also talked about the rebellion back in August of 2017. But in that episode, we didn't talk about Lakshmi Bai or her role uh, in it. Stay tuned at the end for a peek at Unpopular. You can also find that show or subscribe to it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah and I have been talking a lot this month, since it's Women's History Month, about real-life Amazons. And it's interesting, but when you're talking about female warriors, Joan of Arc is one who always comes up. She's kind of the big name among female warriors. Absolutely. And in case you're not familiar, Joan of Arc, of course, is a national heroine in France for leading an army to several victories during the Hundred Years' War. And she's also a Catholic saint. She's had movies made about her, books written about her. She's Uber famous. Way up there. But it's interesting. She's so famous that a lot of female warriors since then have been compared to her. And they've even earned the Joan of Arc nickname, you know, attached to whatever country they're from. There, there are quite a few of them, actually. Yeah. For example, Augustina de Aragon is called Spanish Joan of Arc. And there's also a Vietnamese Joan of Arc. I think you guys have touched on her before. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure she predates Joan of Arc, which makes that kind of a strange title that you're you're getting that, that nickname after the fact. But whatever. What are you going to do? But this is all just to kind of set up today's episode, which is about India's Joan of Arc, a woman named Lakshmi Bai. Now, Lakshmi Bai, who is also known as the Rani of Jhansi, she became famous for her role in the Indian Mutiny of 1857, which is sometimes thought of as India's first war of independence, from the British, of course. And her life is uniquely wrapped up in all the factors that led to this rebellion. So that's kind of why we wanted to focus on her out of all these other Joan of Arcs today. Well, yeah, and I mean, another interesting fact about her is she's still quite important in modern India. She's considered a national heroine, and there are statues of her. Her story is told in things like novels and movies and ballads, just like just like Joan of Arc. I mean, how about that? Um, illustrated comics. I mean, she she's a well-known figure. Yeah, I think Prime Minister Indira Gandhi even appeared as Lakshmi Bai in a political commercial in the 1980s. So she's kind of all over the place, all sort of different facets of of popular culture, and her story has become the stuff of legend. And as we know with legends, a lot of times once history becomes legend, we sort of get a little murky on what's fact and what's fiction. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're just really going to consider who is Lakshmi Bai, what are the real facts about her, and why is she alternately known as India's Joan of Arc and India's Jezebel, depending on who you ask. Yeah, I bet y'all didn't see that one coming. So we're going to start at the beginning, talk a little bit about her childhood, because it really really lays a pretty strong groundwork for the 
woman she become. She was born November 19, 1827, to a Brahmin family in Benares, which is in northern India. And it was a good family. It was um, even maybe a prominent family, but they didn't really have that much money, it seems. According to Rainier Jaros biography, The Rani of Jhansi, Rebel Against Will, they didn't have that much money because her parents had left their home in Maharashtra in central India in exile because the ruler there was banished by the British. So uh, while they had been high-ranking and while her father had been high-ranking, he might have had a little trouble reestablishing himself in a new part of the country and never really attained that high of an income. Yeah, so that just kind of sets up her family for you. But Lakshmi Bai's original name was Monikarnika, and her parents called her Manu. Now, Manu's childhood was kind of unique for a little girl growing up in India around that time. And that's mainly because her mom, Vagirathi, passed away when she was about four years old. And her dad, Morapant Thambe, remained a widower for more than a decade. So really no big conservative corrective influence, that female influence in her life who would have put her on the path to, I guess, a more feminine upbringing? Yeah, no one there telling her to stand up straight and behave, it Mm -hmm. seems. And she was naturally feisty. She was kind of a little tomboy. And because she didn't have this female influence in her life, she got to stay that way. She was allowed to stay that way. And some sources say that it was her dad who was actively encouraging that tomboyish behavior in her. You know, he was teaching her how to do things like ride horses and how to fence and shoot and that was all part of her education. Other sources, such as Jaros, suggest that her father really, he, he just might have not been in the picture enough to, <laughs> to be that closely watching her education. Yeah, so she got to kind of run free Let and her do run whatever wild, she wanted. Yeah. So what is known about her, though, regardless of what really happened, is that she became a very skilled writer and learned how to use weapons and most likely did this before she got married because it would have been very inappropriate for a woman who was a traditional Maharaja's wife to um, to do these things, especially because she, quote, rode a horse like a man. In addition to these manly skills, she also learned to read and write, which was still kind of unusual for girls around that time. Yeah. So, you know, she comes out of this a young girl with unusual talents. And it seems like maybe some of this stuff would even dissuade potential suitors. But she does get married in 1842. She's about 15 years old, and she becomes the second wife of Gungathar Rao Nawalkar, who is a lot older than her. He's childless, but he is the Maharaja of Jhansi, which is a principality about 250 miles southeast of Delhi. And just to give you a little background on terms we're going to be using, because I think from here on out, we're pretty much going to be calling her the Rani. A Raja in India is a prince or a king of a particular area, and his wife is known as a Rani. So she's a, a queen or a princess. It's interesting that you mentioned that about how her behavior might dissuade potential suitors because it's not really clear how the match got uh, the match between these two occurred. They're such an odd couple. They really are and her family really wasn't that wealthy, but here's one theory that's out there about why the raja picked her. Apparently he had a tendency to cross-dress, sometimes for theater roles when he played female roles, but sometimes not. Sometimes he would just wear women's jewelry around and stuff like that. And since this was rather widely known at the time, it's suggested that this may have limited his choices in second brides somewhat. So he may have had to settle for this 
um, noble but not particularly well-off bride. After her marriage, Manu starts going by the name Lakshmi Bai, and this suggests a reverence for the goddess of prosperity and happiness. So Lakshmi was the patron deity of her husband's family, and this would have made sense for her to do, for her to change her name like this. Yeah, it was a good move. And and she really did seem to embrace her role as Rani. She she sort of put aside what she was used to doing pretty easily, it seemed, and um, tried really hard and for a very long time to have a child and an heir. And um, it, it didn't happen. I think years and years went by. But finally, Lakshmi Bai and the Raja took a journey in 1851, kind of a pilgrimage to sacred Hindu sites. And not long after that, she got pregnant and gave birth to a son. And you can imagine this couple was incredibly excited now to finally have an heir and a son at that. But unfortunately for them, that excitement didn't last very long because the baby died at only three months old and they didn't know why it happened. He, he just died suddenly. And and they were unfortunately not just in trouble for personal reasons after that. Yeah, I mean, they're personally, personally, they're grieving, but there are other consequences as well. And that's because of something called the doctrine of lapse. They now have to worry about this too. So here's a little background on the doctrine of lapse. It's a formula that was devised by Lord Dalhousie, who was governor general of India from around 1848 to 1856. And the doctrine, it reflected this general desire on the part of the British to expand the territory that they had in India. And just to give you a little bit of background on, I guess, Indian custom before that time. Family politics. Family politics, exactly. According to Indian tradition, a ruler who didn't have any natural heirs could adopt a person who would then have all the personal and political rights of a son. So, for example, the Rani of Jhansi himself had been an adopted heir. So there was precedent for it there. However, Dalhousie, with this new doctrine, he basically asserted Great Britain's right as the paramount power to approve adoptions. So what it did is, in practice, it gave the British the opportunity to reject a lot of last-minute adoptions and therefore take over this territory. Yeah, to step in and, and collect land piece by piece, which was obviously what their greater policy was. Exactly. But this didn't stop the Rani and the Raja from trying to do the same thing. In 1853, Gangadhar Rao becomes seriously ill and adopts a distant five-year-old cousin named Damodar Rao as his son. And he draws up adoption papers and a will which named the boy as the heir and the Rani as his regent. And he presents them to Major Ellis, who was serving as an assistant political agent at John C. at the time. And this was all done on November 20th, 1853. Unfortunately, though, the Raja dies the very next day. Yeah, so suddenly you have this kind of last-minute paperwork that's just gone down, this British policy that doesn't really look that kindly on these adoptions, especially a last-minute one like this. And um, it seems, though, that things might work out for a minute because Ellis is sympathetic to the Rani, and he forwards the information to his superior, Major John Malcolm. Uh, but Malcolm, even though he's not that keen on the idea of the Rani being regent, he still describes her to Dalhousie as, quote, a woman highly respected and esteemed and I believe fully capable of doing justice to such a charge. So it still seems like maybe the, the British are going to get behind this particular adoption, at least. 
Yeah, unfortunately, though, Dalhousie refuses to acknowledge the Madharao as heir, and the new British superintendent, Captain Alexander Skeen, comes to Jhansi and takes control under the doctrine of lapse without any opposition. So British are now in control, and it seems that the Rani is out of luck. Yeah, the estate's tied up, and, and she's allowed to keep the town palace as a personal residence, but she loses all of the the country estate, and she only gets this annual pension of about 5,000 rupees. And from that, she's expected to pay her husband's debt. So not a good deal at all. So she, she doesn't accept it. No, she doesn't accept it right away. She keeps submitting letters to contest the doctrine of lapse. She submits letters in December, February, April of that year, and she keeps submitting letters until I think early 1856 or so. So she doesn't give up. Most of these letters, however, aren't even forwarded to Lord Dalhousie. So she's not really being taken seriously at this point. Her attempts to get the ear of British officials just it's falling on deaf ears. She's out of luck, it seems. So she consults with the British Council, John Lang, who is trying and trying to get her to agree to this pension she, that she wouldn't accept. And she says to him, and this has become kind of a famous quote, she says, Mary Johnsy nahi dunge. And this means I will not give up my Johnsy. So... She's making a stand. She put her foot down. Um, but meanwhile, we're going to catch you up with go what's going on in the rest of India. There were tensions mounting among the sepoys, which were Indian troops in the British East India Company Army. And um, actually, Candace and Jane, a very long time ago, did an episode on the East India Company. Um, and they mentioned sepoys in that. So you could go learn a little bit extra about them. But on the surface, it seemed like the the tensions that were, were mounting among these troops were caused by rumors at the time that the cartridges for newly issued Enfield rifles were greased with either cow or pig fat. And depending on whether you were a Hindu or a Muslim sepoy, that would be sacrilegious when you had to tear open the cartridges with your teeth. Uh, so the fear was that the British were were doing this on purpose. They knew that this was likely to cause religious-related offense, and they were doing it to undermine the sepoys' faith and eventually make it easier for them to convert them all to Christianity. Yeah, that was the rumor at the time, as you said. But historians tend to think that the tensions that were building up before this they were more due to the so-called reforms that were being made to Indian customs and culture around that time or in the years leading up to it. For example, widows being allowed to marry. That was something that was very radical change. Um, land reform had displaced many landowners. So these things that the Rani was experiencing, others were experiencing them too. Yeah, and and they weren't happy. You can imagine how that would cause some pretty widespread discontent. So in Merat on May 9th, 1857, 85 of these sepoys who refused to use the Enfield cartridges were tried and put into irons. And um, that started off a major rebellion. The next day, three regiments stormed the jail and killed the officers and their families. And they marched from there to Delhi, which was 50 miles away. And from there, the sepoy rebellion really just kind of spread. You know, it started as this localized incident, but it started to spring up elsewhere like little brush fires. And a few leaders took charge and transformed what had been a mutiny into an organized resistance. They were really going to give the British some trouble. Yeah. And eventually the mutiny made its way to Jhansi too. 
On June 6, 1857, the troops at Chauncey mutinied and shot their commanding officers. Captain Skeen, at this point, he gathers all the Europeans in the city, which there were 66 of them, and that included about half of them, I think, were women and children. They took refuge in the fort, which was pretty well designed as a defense. It could withstand a siege, and it had an internal water supply, but they really didn't have that much food at all. So it wasn't going to be a long-term solution to this standoff. Couldn't afford to stay there long. Mm-mm. So on June 8th, Skeen leads the British out of the fort, and they were massacred. By June 12th, the mutineers had left John C. for Delhi. So a bad situation. A very bad situation. And considering how unhappy the Rani had been with the government, many British people believe that she was behind the mutiny. Yeah, but there was never any real proof from this. And as we're going to see, it, it certainly did not benefit her in any way. But still, people were suspicious. This is where the Jezebel part of the title comes from. Um, so she sent a letter afterwards. You know, she knows that people are suspicious of her. So she sent a letter to the British authorities, and she recounted everything that had happened to her. And she said, um, among a lot of other things, quote, that they, the mutineers, afterwards behaved with much violence against herself and her servants and extorted a great deal of money from her. So, you know, basically just trying to make the point, they messed with me too. You know, I was not their leader. I didn't help get this whole thing going. Yeah. And she expresses it's a long letter and you can find excerpts on it in various essays and and biographies. But she basically is like, hey, I'm sorry this happened to you. This is really sad. But My hands were tied. I couldn't do anything about it. She sends another letter later saying that there was anarchy in Jhansi, and she asked for orders from the British, and they issued a proclamation authorizing the Rani to manage the district until they could send soldiers there to restore order. And I was really surprised by this part because up until now, you know, the British have been trying to strip her of any power she had, and here they are authorizing her to, to raise an army pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it shows, you know, that they did think that she had some brains. They had some respect for her. They just didn't want her to actually have any land. Yeah. In absence of any other British option, we will let you run the place for a little while until we get there. But, you know, in general. But she does start building up this army while managing the district. And presumably, at this point, it is to defend Jhansi from neighboring districts and rebels, maybe a distant claimant to the throne. You know, just anybody who might come and cause trouble. Yeah. And according to military history, some of her troops included mutineers from the former Jhansi garrison, which is kind of suspicious, I guess, yeah. and probably didn't help her cause in trying to convince people that she wasn't responsible Distance for the mutiny. herself from them. Right. Then Jeroche also says that her army included some women, too, and that this was an indicator of how devoted and loyal her subjects were to her because they were willing to cast aside tradition to fight with her. Speaking of tradition, we need to mention the appearance of this woman, too, and her mannerisms, because she she cut quite a figure, I mean, to, to say the least. She's been described as being fair and handsome, even though, um, according to most of the British men who described her, her face was a little on the round side. Um, but she, quote, had a noble presence and figure and a stern expression. And instead of 
following the traditional customs of widows at the time and dressing all in white and not wearing any jewelry. She came out wearing men's clothes sometimes, this coat of dark blue, a beautiful turban on her head, and this embroidered cloth around her waist and jeweled a jeweled sword. I mean, she she must have been pretty amazing looking, especially yeah. out leading an army. Yeah, definitely. And she, I guess, had some moves too. People have said that they've, you know, they saw her practicing her skills on horseback and with her weapons out, um, you know, while she was getting this army together. And uh, one of her signature moves, which I love, I think I was trying to remember this for you earlier, but couldn't remember it. It was that she would be on a horse and twirling a saber in each hand with the reins of the horse in her teeth. Oh, wow. So very skilled indeed. That would be really scary if you <laughs> if you saw someone coming with two sabers. Yeah. I'd be worried about my teeth, though, I if that were me. <laughs> <laughs> I would, too. He might, like, go over a little bump or something. Yeah. Yeah, but... She had bigger problems, though, than her teeth. I mean, that was not her top concern. That was not her top concern. And, I mean, if you wanted to show people you were tough, hey, that's the way to do it. Suffice to say, she soon got the opportunity to show off her skills. In January 1858, Major General Sir Hugh Rose, who ends up being named as her major opponent in this whole affair, I think, marched toward the city with soldiers. And as late as February, the Rani told her British advisors that she would, in fact, return the district to the British yeah, when they got there. This so is their army. Exactly. She didn't seem, this is the relief she's been waiting for, right? Um, so not confrontational at this point, but that's not what really happened. It wasn't a nice handoff, was it's, it? It's not how Rose treats the situation at all. Mm-mm. On March 25th, 1858, Rose and his forces attacked Jhansi. And again, according to military history, Lakshmi Bai resisted because she wasn't sure if she was going to be executed if she was captured. I think she really believed that. The British, after all, they still weren't really happy with her after the mutiny and really blamed her for it still. Many of them did, the officials at least. Well, and, and clearly the relations between her and the British were muddled, to say the least. I mean, she didn't know what exactly was going on. So by March 30th, most of the Rani's guns were disabled and the fort's walls had been breached. And by April 3rd, the British broke into the city and they took the palace and stormed the fort. But she got out. She escaped on horseback in the night before that final assault. And this is the amazing part. And if you if you look up a picture of her, You'll see dramatizations of this, not entirely accurate ones, but <laughs> she escapes into the night on horseback with her 10-year-old adopted son strapped to her back. I think he mentioned that she knew she was going to have to ride too fast to just have him sitting in front of her. Yeah. Strapped to her back. Yeah. I mean, this is where you see a lot of the legend come in. You'll hear many different accounts of how this escape might have occurred. But in general, we think that he was strapped to her back, tied to her with a sash, and that she and a bunch, maybe up to 300 of her troops, escaped in the middle of the night. And it's all a little bit sketchy because how did they get past the British troops? But maybe they were just confused in the dark. Yeah, but I mean, once the Rani is out, she rode like the wind because she was afraid that the British were after her. And it said she rode anywhere from 86 to 93 miles in 24 hours to get all the way to the fortress of Kalpi, uh, where she joined up with some of the other resistance leaders. 
Yeah, Nana Saheb, Rao Saheb, and Thathia Thope, these were well-known resistance leaders. They had been involved in other mutinies elsewhere in India going on at the time. And so they grouped together, joined forces, at, um, and they faced the British in two consecutive battles, um, starting from Kalpi, one on May 6th, but which they were forced to retreat from, and another one where they were defeated again on May 22nd or 23rd, somewhere around there. The British thought that was the end at that point, but that wasn't actually the case. On May 30th, the rebels reached Gwalior, which controlled both the Grand Trunk Road and the telegraph lines between Agra and Bombay. There they met Joyji Rao Shindia, the Maharaja of Gwalior, and he was a British loyalist and actually tried to stop them at this point. He tried to kind of push the rebels back and not let them in, but his troops ended up switching sides and he had to flee to Agra. So at this point, the rebels have control of Gwalior. Yeah, a pretty big bunch of them too by now. Mm -hmm. And on June 16th, Rose's forces close in though. So it's important to note up until this point, Lakshmi Bai had not been out at the head of, of these rebel battles, uh, but she was the one who led what remained of her John C. contingent out to to stop Rose's forces on Gwalior. She went out to battle dressed in male clothing. She had on the red uniform of a cavalry officer. She was wearing a white turban over her short hair. She really cut quite an inspiring figure. But during the battle, she was shot from her horse and killed. And it's believed that she was cremated really soon after that because she was terrified that her body would fall into British hands and, and not be treated respectfully. And after her death, Gwalior fell pretty soon after that, and the organized rebellion really fizzled out. And even though Lakshmi Bai herself did not really win any of these battles, it seems like her personality and her bravery really left a big impression on people. Yeah, it's really that, I think, as you mentioned, her personality that's really made her a symbol of the fight for Indian independence. And at the time, I think it was sort of true as well. I mean, British newspapers proclaimed Lakshmi Bai the Jezebel of India, but even Sir Hugh Rose, her big rival in this whole battle, compared his fallen adversary to Joan of Arc. So that's, you know, maybe one of the first places that we see that. And he reported her death to William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, in this way. He said, The Rani is remarkable for her bravery, cleverness, and perseverance. Her generosity to her subordinates was unbounded. These qualities, combined with her rank, rendered her the most dangerous of all rebel leaders. And I mean, I think that's interesting. And I mentioned this a minute ago when we were talking about how strange it is that they gave her they gave her permission to raise an army in the first place, but that they would be so disrespectful of her claims, yet so admiring of her her personality and her her capability. I, I just think it's, um, I don't know, it's sad. Yeah, it's a huge contradiction. But I mean, I think we see that a lot throughout women's history. And Rose had more praise for her and maybe somewhat dubious praise, I guess, depending on how you like to study your women's history. He said, although she was a lady, she was the bravest and best military leader of the rebels, a man among the mutineers. So his highest compliment was comparing her to a man. Yeah. And so does a popular folk song, but I think that it might put it a little, a little better. A little better, yeah. It's definitely more exciting. <laughs> right. So the folk song goes, how valiantly like a man fought she, the Rani of Jhansi. On every parapet a gun she set, raining fire of hell. How well like a man fought the Rani of Jhansi, how valiantly and well. 
Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday. If you have heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of today's episode, since it is from the archive, that might be out of date now. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com and you can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine for a moment a world where nobody ever questioned the way things are. One where no person ever challenged common thought or believed in thinking beyond the limitations of contemporary knowledge. Where no one ever had the guts to propose new ideas for fear of being shunned or killed. Without protest, there would be no progress. I, for one, am thankful that there were plenty of people in history who refused to accept the conventions of their time. People like Galileo, who was punished and confined for suggesting facts that other people couldn't fathom. And Fumalayo Ransomkuti, who stood up for women in Nigeria when their needs were being ignored. When they were alive, their ideas, their actions, Their audacity was despised by so many people. Of course, they had supporters, but their opposition made them targets of hate and state-sanctioned denouncement. Even though their dissent was based in research and experience and driven by desire for meaningful change, they still made lots of enemies for it. It's human nature to value stability and patterns. It makes sense for us to be resistant to change, and being wrong just sucks. But change is inevitable, and we have to think forward if we're going to move forward, even if it costs us. I'm Eve Jeffcoat. Every week on Unpopular, we'll reach back into the past to tell the story of someone who challenged the status quo, connecting the dots between their history and the history that we're making today. We can be so quick to dismiss people's ideas when they seem too big, don't align with how we see the world, make us uncomfortable, or shatter our pride or power. It's easy to reject change. It's harder to be open to new ideas. And often, it's hard to be the person who's calling for meaningful change in the face of people who can be arrogant, stubborn, and unwilling to accept that change. But somebody has to do it, and sometimes it pays off. Is it worth it to speak out when it feels like the world is against you? The first episode of Unpopular comes out on May 30th. After that, you can look forward to a new episode every Tuesday. Click the subscribe button in the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. 